This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is New Books in Kurdish Studies, a podcast channel on New Books Network. And I am Dilan Okcholu, a postdoc fellow from American University in Washington, D.C. Today, I'm joined by Professor Ora Sackley, who is um, teaching in the Department of Political Science at Clark University. Ora Sackley is the author of recently published book on insurgent woman, um, female combatants in civil wars, uh, with two co-authors, Jessica Trisco-Darden and Alexis Henshaw. So, um, hello, Aura. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we are very happy to have you. Um, let's start with the first question. Uh, I'm very curious about your motivations, your intentions uh, to work on the Kurdish female fighters. How did you start to choose this topic for your research? So I have to confess, this is a topic that I kind of stumbled into by accident, uh, mostly because political scientists, uh, this is what the, how I explain this story to my students, mostly because political scientists are really bad at going on vacation. Um, a couple of years ago, I was at a workshop, like an academic workshop in Istanbul, and you know, decided to take advantage of the fact that I was in Turkey to travel around and to maybe you know get to see some areas that I hadn't had a chance to visit on any of my my previous trips. And so, I found this like very cheap ticket, I think on like Pegasus Airlines or something, to Diyarbakir. And so I'd planned, okay, like I'll go see Diyarbakir. I've heard it's you know a really interesting place, particularly if you study politics. And I mentioned this to one of our graduate students, uh, who I ran into at a talk that had been had been given on the reconstruction of the Armenian Church in Diyarbakir. I mentioned that I was thinking I might want to, you know, go visit, and you know, could he recommend anything else that uh, that I should see? And so he put me in touch with a couple of friends who he thought, you know, might be able to show me around the city a little bit, as well as uh, a local politician who you know, had been giving this talk that I'd attended, who very generously was like, you know, said, okay, yeah, come come by my office or said something similar to, to my graduate student. He said it in Turkish, so I don't actually know <laughs> what the content was of that exchange. But so I arrived in Diyarbakir thinking, okay, like I'm going to go look at some, you know, some beautiful ruins and maybe learn a little bit about Kurdish politics. But the the friend of a friend of a friend of a friend who was supposed to show me around happened to be a journalist. And when I met her for coffee that morning, I noticed there were these like helicopters that were flying over the city. And I asked 
via uh, you know somebody else who happened to be having coffee with us uh, who who spoke Arabic. I do not speak Turkish or Kurdish, so you know we had to have this sort of game of telephone with an interpreter in between us. But I asked, oh, you know, what's with the what's with the helicopters? And it was explained to me that there was a march that day, that there was a, a march that had been organized by what was then the BDP before it became the HDP uh, in, in memory uh, of, uh, you know, the three female uh, PKK activists who'd been, uh, who'd been assassinated in Paris two years before. Uh, but don't worry, we didn't have to go to the march. We were just going to go do some tourist stuff. And I said, no, 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 I would really like to go to the march. Can we do that instead? And so, uh, again, purely by accident, I found myself at this protest march in Diyarbakir and was fascinated to see how many women were present at the march, not just as spectators or participants, but also as leaders, right? Like riding on the trucks at the front of the march, um, leading the chants, giving speeches. And this was really striking to me because I, you know, in the course of my research have been to a number of protest marches in different places around the Middle East. And I'd never seen anything like this, even in, you know, at events that had been organized by leftist organizations in other parts of the region, uh, I'd never seen such an explicit centering of women's participation and women's leadership in the movement. And this kind of got me thinking like, huh, I wonder, I wonder why the Kurdish national movement is like this. I wonder, you know, what, what makes this movement different than other leftist nationalist movements in other parts of the region. And I started doing some reading and I, I got really interested in particular in the role of women in combat positions not just in the PKK, but also you know, once the Syrian civil war really got going in the YPJ in Syria. And in particular, the contrast between those organizations and women's involvement in Kurdish politics in Iraq, which of course is, is somewhat less extensive. So uh, that's sort of the, the origin story, I guess, for how I became interested in this question. And uh, it's it's been a really fascinating project to get to work on. Uh, yes, and also Aura. Your book is uh, interesting for all scholars who would like to comparatively analyze Kurdish female fighters. Um, and you have two more cases in the book, Ukraine and Colombia. And what are the key findings and conclusions um, in the book, especially regarding the participation of women in uh, the Kurdish um, national moment in Syria, Turkey, but also Iraqi Kurdistan? Well, I think, you know, my my personal key finding from that book is everybody should write books with their friends. Uh, because getting to work with Jessica and Alexis on that book was really, really wonderful, in part because they both know an enormous amount about parts of the world that I don't spend very much time thinking about. So, you know, Jessica knows a tremendous amount about Ukraine and, and uh, mm. other parts of Eastern Europe. Uh, Alexis has done extensive work on women's participation in uh, armed conflict in Colombia, elsewhere in Latin America. So for me, at least, part of the fun of working on that book was getting to sort of compare notes a little bit on literally in the book on these different uh, cases that the three of us spend a lot of time thinking about and to think sort of broadly and comparatively. So one thing that became clear fairly quickly was that both the Kurdish and Colombian cases, particularly the PKK and the FARC, and then also the, you know, the sort of the allied uh, 
Kurdish groups in Syria, the YPJ and YPG, that women's participation in those organizations is far higher, at least in formal combat roles, than what you see in a lot of other non-state armed groups around the world, including Ukraine, although there's also a lot of women's participation in um, different armed groups there. But the, I think the biggest takeaway for us was that even if the formal roles that women hold varies, even if the number of women in like official combat positions varies from conflict to conflict or from organization to organization, women's participation is a normal feature of warfare, including civil war and asymmetric war. But even though it is a constant right? Despite the fact that the nature of that participation varies a great deal. Um, it's also something that is um, that is treated as being uh, unusual or worthy of comment, right? Um, women fighters are always referred to as women fighters. Uh, fighters, without an adjective in front of it, is taken to mean men. And roles that are filled by women are often described as being or treated as being sort of like adjunct roles uh, to warfare. But when those same roles are filled by men, they're, they have different names, right? A, a woman who provides food or, or other support services to an armed force is just like, uh, you know, a woman providing food or, armed, or, or other services to an armed force, but a man doing the same thing as a logistics officer. So, you know, that was another takeaway that women's participation in armed conflict is uh, is something that is quite normal and and that we see in many civil wars and other kinds of asymmetric conflict around the world. And also the erasure of women's participation in those conflicts is also something that we see in, in many uh, in many conflicts around the world. Yes. Um, so um, I also had a chance to read your article that you published in 2020. Um, it's called Fighting About Women, Ideologies of Gender in the Syrian Civil War. And in this article, uh, you make a remarkable point, um, and you argue that women's participation was strategically highlighted by some of those involved in the war as a low-cost means of signaling their position in the conflict. Um, so. Would you like to uh, explain this point a little bit? And um, what are the contributions of and further implications of this argument for the broader literature, but also for the growing literature on Kurdish studies? Uh, or I'm asking this question because uh, I know several young uh, students uh, who are very much interested uh, in Kurdish studies, in different aspects of Kurdish studies, and uh, your work uh, may inspire these students as well. Well, I, you know, I certainly, I, I certainly hope so because Kurdish studies and the study of the you know Kurdish national movements in and Kurdish politics in different parts of the Middle East is is really fascinating. And I look forward to reading scholarship by by all kinds of people, yourself included. And I'm really excited to see what the field produces next. So the argument that I tried to make in that article is sort of predicated on the idea that most of the time when we think about like the big ideological divisions around which conflicts are organized, the role of women in society isn't usually one of them, right? For, for all that that is a tremendously important 
uh, ideological feature of many armed groups in terms of like how much it it or the ways in which that it impacts people's actual daily life, right? If you're a woman living in territory controlled by an armed group, what that armed group thinks about you and your life and what you should be allowed to do with it. Like, obviously, that's fairly important um, for individuals. But armed groups don't actually tend to center gender ideology uh, in how they define themselves most of the time. Like, it's just not like a thing that most armed groups care about more than they care about other stuff like class or religion or ethnic identity or like all the other stuff that armed groups organize their ideological orientation around. But Syria is unusual because we've got two major armed forces for whom gender ideology actually is a core feature of their their self-definition, their, their self-image. On the one hand, we've got ISIS for whom, um, let's call it a gender exclusionary ideology is a core feature of who they are, how they see themselves, how they explain themselves in the world, how they distinguish themselves from their rivals. And then on the other hand, we have the Kurdish forces, that is the, the PYD, the political leadership, and then the, you know their two affiliated armed wings, the YPG and YPJ, for whom gender inclusion and egalitarianism and the promotion of women's rights is a core feature of you know, who they are, how they promote themselves, how they explain themselves to the world. So for ISIS, right, when we look at their recruitment materials, when we look at their, uh, particularly their like their foreign language stuff, so the stuff that they are using to try and convince people from other parts of the world that territory governed by ISIS is where they want to live, um, that material includes this very like explicit messaging about you know women, um, women's rights or I guess lack thereof, like <laughs> disparaging the idea of women, you know having some kind of autonomous life outside the home or away from their male relatives. Um, and then if you you know look at the, the propaganda materials produced on the Kurdish side, it is very explicitly pointed towards women's rights, like even, even um, materials featuring male fighters include people talking about women's rights and, and you know fighting to build a, a more just society where the rights of women uh, are, are centered. That's kind of unusual. So what this has done is created a situation where you have these two very important actors in the conflict who are fighting over the same bit of territory, uh, pointing to their gender ideologies as being a central point of contention. And the way that this gets described in the news media is sometimes like, maybe not as nuanced as we would like, you know, there's all these see all these news stories about, you know, how ISIS fighters are terrified of getting killed by YPJ fighters or that, you know, there's all this sort of weird fixation um, on the novelty of, of Kurdish women fighters that can be kind of Orientalist and kind of exoticizing and, and occasionally uh, vaguely insulting. Um, but, but still, right, we have this narrative where all of a sudden women's rights is a central feature of this war. So what that's done is it's created a really cheap and easy way for other participants in the war who like don't actually care very much about women's rights, but want to prove that they are uh, not that they are not on ISIS's side. Who want to like distinguish themselves from ISIS? It's given them a pretty cheap way of signaling this by talking about how they themselves uh, promote women's rights, or at least by putting a couple of female soldiers in their propaganda materials in strategic ways. So, you know, the UAE does this, the Jordanians do this, uh, the Assad regime does, regime does this, um, you know, even some of the other rebel forces. 
So that's that's what I mean when I talk about uh, gender ideology or let's say gendered symbolism being used by these different participants in the war to position themselves as being in opposition to ISIS or being, um, if not explicit, you know, if not on like the Kurdish side, at least on some kind of undefined right side of the war. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Okay, yes. And just in relation to this point, um, I need, uh, I, I think we need to have more comparative examples that analyze the case of Iraqi Kurds with the cases of uh, Syria and Turkey as well as Iran. Well, Iran is a big challenge because, because you know, scholars interested in, uh, in Kurds in uh, Kurdistan cannot easily travel uh, to Iran. For sure. Um, and I know some scholars uh, who were arrested, uh, who were detained and, of course, threatened. Uh, but still, uh, of course, uh, there's a huge gap in the literature in that sense. Um, and we know that uh, we have to especially uh, look at uh, the uh, female participation, the rate of uh, rate of female participation and uh, the implications of that for um, for society, for politics, for institutions. So um, what are the, your, your insights in that regard? When you make comparison between Iraqi Kurds, Syrian Kurds and Kurds in Turkey, uh, what are your findings, Aura? For sure. That's that's such an interesting question. You know, one of the... So when I first started this project, right, and I, I first started uh, trying to sort out, like, okay, what, essentially, why are there so many women in the PKK, right? That was sort of the, the first question that I got really interested in. And in particular, um, why do you have this very unusual situation where not only are there lots of women in this armed force, uh, the official statistic is as high as forty percent, although, you know, there's some there's some debate around that. But not only are there huge numbers of of women soldiers, but there are also women commanders. And because the units are mixed, you have male soldiers who have to take orders from female commanding officers. Um, that is quite unusual among uh, armed groups, especially in the Middle East. And one of the answers that I kept running across in the literature, and also, you know, just sort of like anecdotally. Uh, people kept saying like, well, it's Kurdish culture, right? Kurds are, are just like this. But then when you look at uh, the Kurdish armed groups in Iraq, for comparison, that just isn't the case. Like you don't see these huge numbers of, uh, of female fighters. There aren't, you know, female officers, certainly not female officers giving orders uh, to, to male soldiers. It's, it's just not, it's just not the case. So there's this very important difference amongst the individual uh, you know, Kurdish armed groups. And, you know, that's, that's not to say that there isn't also uh, mm -hmm. a, an enormous amount of activism and commitment to women's rights and to gender yes. egalitarianism mm -hmm. among in the Kurdish community in Iraq. But the, the nature of the politics that animates those armed groups is just different. So that it suggests to me that there is an, you know, ideology matters, leadership matters, but also the process through which people become politicized matters. So the story that I heard 
from uh, at least some of the people that I talked to who were either involved in the civilian uh, part of the Kurdish women's movement in Turkey, or I also talked to um, just a a very few people who had had uh, experience with the PKK, but who have, you know, long since left. Um, The story that I heard from a lot of them was it was this very particular process of mobilization for people who lived in and around Diyarbakir and elsewhere in in, uh, southeastern Turkey and Turkish Kurdistan in the 80s and 90s, that when this counterinsurgency campaign begins, all of these Kurdish women were suddenly, because their, you know, their husbands and brothers and fathers were arrested, found themselves as heads of households for the first time. And also because of the, you know, the nature of the Turkish prison system, found themselves um, in this position of having to advocate for their relatives who were in jail and mobilizing, you know, for prisoners' rights. At the same time, a bunch of Kurdish women had also been locked up. So stories start coming out of the prisons about how you know these female prisoners are experiencing exactly the same thing that the male prisoners are experiencing, if not worse. And this draws a lot of women into the Kurdish national movement as Kurds, right? Like they're experiencing political repression based on their Kurdish identity. But then when they get there, because of their experiences as women, they're also politicized as women within the movement. And so once they're there, they start, you know, pushing for greater women's rights within the Kurdish national movement itself. So the the term that I've seen in a lot of existing academic research and that I heard from some of the women I talked to was a double struggle that they, you know, they needed to advocate for themselves as Kurds and also as women. And I think there, you know, there may be something kind of idiosyncratic in the combination of uh, the process by which individuals were mobilized in Turkey and the ideological underpinnings of the movement, which made space for women's participation. And then that, you know, that formula then gets transferred to Syria because of the ideological ties and also like the personal ties. There are a lot of people who, um, this is, this is anecdotal, but I've, I have read that many of the early officers in the YPJ uh, were women who had, you know, like years or even decades of, of combat experience in Turkey already. And so many of the institutional norms within the PKK are then transferred into the YPJ when they arrive. Although that is not based on uh, my own interview data. That's stuff that I've, I've read that other people have found. Yes. Um, your words just um, um, brought another important question to my mind. Um, when we look at how the moment describes itself, we see that they may use different terms or different scholars tend to use different terms to describe the moment. Some people usually call like Kurdish political moment. Some others just say Kurdish moment. Uh, while some other people, including yourself now in the podcast, you say Kurdish national moment. Um, so uh, in those interviews with ex-commanders, ex-female commanders, uh, combatants, uh, did you have any kind of discussion with them about the terminology, about the concept that they prefer to describe themselves? You know, that's an that's an excellent question. And as as you are asking it, it strikes me that the term Kurdish national movement is maybe not the right one. Um, I use this almost reflexively because, frankly, it's the terminology used by other. Uh, organizations that I've studied in other parts of the Middle East, and it, it in some ways feels like sort of a neutral term. But as we know, particularly since the shift um, towards uh, a movement for greater local autonomy and a sort of a multi-ethnic 
coalition in southeastern Turkey. And then, you know, like the, the political project in Rojava is based around democratic confederalism rather than secessionism. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You know, it may be that national movement is maybe not the right term. Um, and I, I would be curious, actually, which terminology you think would be more appropriate and and what seems to be um, most preferred by activists themselves? Yeah, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, and also I recently published a book chapter on uh, the Kurdish movement, I uh, used the term Kurdish movement, and sometimes I use it interchangeably with Kurdish political movement. Mm. Um, but I also know that there were some other people who would also say that uh, Kurdish movement is not completely against nationalism. There are still some people, activists and combatants maybe, um, in the moment uh, who would continue to fight for uh, specifically for Kurdish rights. Um, but the movement itself uh, doesn't prefer to describe uh, itself in that way, uh, especially when we look at the ideology uh, and the strategies that are used, adopted, and the ultimate goal itself, as you mentioned. Um, so... Um, yeah, maybe this is a part of ongoing conversation. Or, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's a really good point. Okay, thank you. And I, I will be happy uh, to think a uh, little bit more on that and maybe uh, talk again in the future. Yeah, I want to read your book chapter. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really excited to see what you have to say. <laughs> I will be happy to share it with you. Thank you. Uh, so another question, uh, because I'm, uh, I also conducted fieldwork in Kurdish borderlands uh, when there was ceasefire. Um, uh, between uh, Turkey, uh, Turkish state, and uh, the PKK in 2013 and 14, and there were several other Kurdish scholars uh, who were traveling in the region too. Um, so, because it was relatively quote unquote safer uh, for yeah. us to do that, and I traveled along uh, Turkish-Iranian borders and Turkish-Iraqi borders, uh, both of which are Kurdish populated. So, you also yourself also conducted extensive field work in several locations across the Middle East. Um, what are the prospects and challenges of uh, doing fieldwork uh, for both researchers and also for the local population? This is this is such a great question. So I I will confess my other sort of side project mm-hmm. uh, these days is thinking about fieldwork. Uh, I published an edited volume with, yes, my, with, yeah. with Peter Krauss on you know, great work. Yeah. Story, stories from the field, which was basically just our, our attempt mm-hmm. at like archiving the backstories of some of our favorite bits of research and to give people a chance to like reflect honestly about the stuff that went wrong and what they learned from it. And you know, what they, the stuff that, you know, you only tell your graduate students during office hours and don't ever publish because it's, you know, vaguely embarrassing about the, you know, the, the time that you're, cab was surrounded by a, a herd of goats or whatever, right? Um, we wanted to talk about all of that stuff openly. And you also have your uh, pod- podcast series on that. We, yes, we do. Um, we do <laughs> yeah. also have a, have a podcast series. So if, you know, if your listeners are thinking that my yes. voice sounds unusually clear, it's uh, because recording that podcast was an incentive for me to finally buy myself a decent microphone. Um, <laughs> in any case, so I've been, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this question, right? What is good field work? Um, what is good field work for researchers? And more importantly, what does good field work mean for the people that participate in our field work? Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is, I, you know, I could, I could spend 
two hours just unpacking this or more just unpacking this question. But, you know, I, I think at its core, good field work is respectful mm-hmm. and it is non-extractive, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Field, field, research are not, field researchers are not miners, right? We are not going out like prospecting for information. Good field research should be based on um, clearly, so clearly understood relationships. So every, you know, if I sit down for an interview with somebody, they should know exactly who I am and what I'm doing there. Um, they should understand that I am a researcher and that I'm there to talk to them and, and learn from them uh, and then share what they have shared with me uh, in exactly the way that I tell them that I'm going to share it. Right. So there should also be clarity from everybody about, you know, what exactly we're doing there. And, you know, people should have uh, ideally research participants should, should feel a sense of agency. I mean, always they should feel a sense of agency, but also, you know, our research should be good for something. And I think that's true about political science just in general, right? No matter what your research methodology is, it should be good for something. It should be good for mm-hmm. for some group of people um, beyond just the person who's going to, you know, like publish the work and, uh, and, and hopefully <laughs> get tenure as a result. Um, our research should do something for some group of people. And, mm-hmm. My experience, broadly speaking, has been that almost without exception, many of the people that I talk to are just really grateful that somebody cares. And mm-hmm. and that in and of itself um, makes me kind of sad because, of course, people should care. Um, and if, if I'm the first person who has sat down and asked somebody about you know, their life's experience and tried to understand the political, you know, their, their experience of, you know, profoundly important political events. A, I have a responsibility uh, to that person as a result of that conversation. But B, it sometimes makes me wonder, like, seriously, nobody, nobody cared about, no, nobody asked you this before. And, you know, particularly when you're talking about people who are members of, um, you know, relatively well-known organizations. Uh, I think there's there's a responsibility to share those stories accurately um, and to to approach those conversations uh, with you know a genuine interest in understanding people's perspectives. Um, that doesn't mean mm-hmm. that any of us has an obligation to feel uh, you know like to to be personally committed to the political goals that the people we interview are advocating. For many of us, that's not possible. Um, I've interviewed lots and lots of people in political organizations across the Middle East whose political goals I personally, as an individual, do not share. Um, And that, in some cases, that is putting it very mildly. But that doesn't mean that we don't still have an obligation ethically as researchers uh, to, to treat that person, regardless of who they are or what they've done, um, to treat that person in their role as a research participant, uh, respectfully, with respect for their safety, with respect for, um, you know, what they're willing to share with us. We have an obligation to not, you know, like re-traumatize our research participants by springing, uh, you know, like painful or psychologically damaging questions on them with no notice, uh, or, or in some cases, to, you know, just we shouldn't be asking those questions at all. So, you know, it's it's a big question, but I think the short answer is to be reflective about it, to like think about what your field work is for, who it's for, and how you're going to do it in a way that you know has the 
the maximum benefit for the maximum number of people um, while, while not damaging anyone, uh, which in some cases is easier said than done. Exactly. Um, it's, a very, it, it's a very long answer, but it's a big question. No, I appreciate that because I'm very interested in uh, those questions as well. Um, and uh, there were some extra challenges that I couldn't anticipate before uh, I went to Kurdistan. Uh, and um, it took a long time to process um, all those experiences um, because some of them could be personal. But, but also, yeah. as you said, uh, we, are, uh, we have responsibility uh, as, a, as a researcher as well. Um, so um, that's why uh, I also find your uh, podcast with Peter Krauss very helpful. Um, oh, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah, it was very helpful for me. And uh, still, because I'm writing a short piece on this and I'm planning to publish article on the subject uh, and your uh, insights uh, kind of like offer good guidelines. And that's why I recommend uh, everyone, both graduate students and uh, young scholars, emerging scholars, um, to listen to your podcast and uh, get the book uh, and uh, read them and uh, uh, like take those into considerations um, when they design their research. That's so- that's really you know I, I would just add one other thing. Sorry, this just occurred to me, and I I, I think it's worth mentioning. You know, um, none of us are human tape recorders, right? We're all people, um, and that means that we bring our personal identities and backgrounds, and you know who who we are in our <laughs> in our like day to day lives. Mm-hmm. Um, we bring all of that with us when we do field work. Um, and we also, you know, and, and the people that we're talking to see that and engage with us accordingly. And we also, it is normal to have an emotional response to difficult conversations that you have in the, in the course of your field work. And, um, you know, like having a, a support network in place and, you know, recognizing that we're, we're all people doing this work. We're not like, we're not robots just sort of running around um, recording and analyzing uh, and, and recognizing, yeah, I guess just like recognizing that we're all people with, with our own identities, our own backstories, our own positionality, that that shapes how we are understood um, by the, the people we, we do research with and, and how we understand our own position. And, and, you know, a bit of awareness in that sense goes a long way. So uh, this is our final question. And this is, uh, again, related to or a conversation about the field work. Um, again, I can also talk uh, for at least half an hour about <laughs> field work <laughs> and different aspects of it. So uh, these days, I know several graduate students uh, or uh, scholars who would like to travel and uh, do their research um, in the MENA region. Um, but due to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, they cannot travel that. Uh, but uh, hopefully in the second half uh, of this year or next, sometime next year, um, they, they will have chance to do that. Um, do you have any suggestions for those researchers uh, who would like to travel to the region uh, and start their field work? Um. Well, you know, with so with the with the very important caveat that uh, vaccination campaigns are moving much more slowly in many parts of the world than they are in mm-hmm. North America and and Western Europe, and that it is absolutely imperative that no researcher uh, conduct fieldwork in a way that endangers local communities. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we really, we really do need to wait um, to restart field work until it is absolutely safe for everyone involved. So with, with that caveat, um, you know, this has been incredibly hard for graduate students. And I, you know, I think the most important bit of advice that I have is not actually for, for students or for, you know, for junior scholars, but for uh, departments, administrators, and universities, which is, uh, it is on us to find ways to support our students through all of this. Um, And that what that means is going to look different for different universities, but recognizing that people's careers have essentially been frozen, especially for people whose research relies on doing, you know, participant observation or interviews or, you know, stuff that's really hard to do at a distance. Um, Recognizing that, that this is not a normal year and that people's timelines and careers have really, you know, been um, badly disrupted uh, and that we all need to adjust accordingly. So that's, (laughs) that's thing one, but, but for when we can actually go back to the Middle East and, and restart, Fieldwork again, um, or you know, really travel anywhere for people who whose research is in places where, um, you know, where they haven't been able to do that yet. Whether that means, um, you know, a scholar who's who hasn't been able to do research in their own neighborhood because of the pandemic, or somebody who hasn't been able to get on an airplane. When we can all do that again, um, I would say my first bit of advice is, um, if you can brush up on language skills. I say this as somebody who uh, had the the research project that you and I have been talking about required me to work uh, in a language that I do not speak. I do not speak Kurdish. I do not speak Turkish. I relied on some really wonderful uh, local interpreters. But, um, you know, when I moved on to my current project, which is on the conflict in Syria and was able to do my own interviews again, because I was interviewing people in Arabic, which I, which I do speak, uh, I realized what an enormous relief it was um, to, you know, to be able to, to lean on my existing language skills. So, um, you know, if that's relevant for you, investing some time in at least late, you know, getting sort of like a foundational level of uh, your research language, whatever that language might be. Um, there's, there's a lot of benefit to that. It's, you know, not everybody, um, not everybody does uh, research in a. Not everybody acquires fluency in the, the you know the languages that they need for research, and there's certainly workarounds. But uh, in some ways, it'll make your life a bit easier. Um, the second bit of advice that I that I would offer, um, and this is particularly true, I think, for undergraduates and graduate students. I'm going to steal this from Wendy Perlman from her contribution to our book and our podcast, yeah. which is. There is a lot of value to be had in just hanging out. Mm. Um, in in you know, if you're interested in doing research in say the Middle East, um, you know, if you're an undergraduate student or um, a graduate student, you're just starting out. There's a lot to be said for building in a couple of months to just go get to know a place without an agenda, without uh, you know, like the need to uh, you know think about your relationships strategically in relation to your research, but rather just to kind of, you know, get to know a place on its own terms, to wander around with your eyes open, to see what seems interesting. Because those experiences, uh, I think, at least in my experience, those experiences have been um, those which have sparked the most interesting and important questions for me that have, have been 
the questions that I, you know, have turned into my dissertation or turned into books or turned into articles. Um, there's a lot to be said for unstructured time, not just because that can develop good research questions, but also because, you know, developing a genuine affection for and attachment to the places that we study, I think is good for scholarship. Um, I think, uh, you know, getting to know a place on its own terms is also, you know, it's, it's just like it's useful in its own right, but it also, um, it lends uh, compassion and affection to the work that we do. And those are, I think, good qualities to cultivate for all of us. I completely agree. Um, thank you uh, for this helpful advice as well. Um, so um, this is just a personal note before uh, we end uh, the conversation. Uh, my father passed away on Sunday, um, and uh, I would like to um, dedicate this podcast uh, to him. Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, he's uh, listening to us. He can hear us from wherever he's now, wherever he's gone. Um, and he will be very happy to listen to this one as we are talking about Kurds, Kurdish women, their participation, their active role in political change. Um, so, Ora, thank you very much uh, for your time, for joining us today. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Talking to you. Um, thank you so much for having me. I feel particularly honored to have been part of this podcast in memory of your late father. Thank you, Ora.